Bud Light presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. Today we salute you, Mr. Supermarket Deli Meat Slicer. Mr. Supermarket Deli Meat Slicer. To feed America's hunger, you stand dangerously close to a buzzsaw, armed only with a salami. Just you and your salami. Behind your glass fortress, you quickly fill orders as shoppers shout, Hey, I was first. Take number, please. And no matter what you're slicing, from bologna to liverwurst, you always hit your mark. One-tenth of an ounce over. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, oh master slicer. And remember, when someone asks who cut the cheese, you can proudly say, it was me. Light beer and as a bush in Lewis, Missouri. Well, tell the story about Finley and uh, you guys on the Oakland A's and how the mustaches became indigenous to the Oakland A's ball club. Well, 72, uh, we came to spring training. Reggie Jackson showed up with a mustache and a beard uh, combined. And uh, there were, at that time, no facial hair in the big leagues. And he wouldn't shave it off. All the guys on the team uh, got on him. Hey, shave the thing off. You know, it's not right. And he wouldn't do it. So um, Catfish Hunter, uh, myself, uh, Daryl Knowles, buying Bob Locker. There was about four or five of us pitchers. We were sitting in the bullpen one day, and we decided, hey, let's grow mustaches. And if we grow mustaches, Dick Williams, our manager, will say, okay, guys, cut them off. And uh, that will be the end of it. And Dick Bill Williams would say, okay, Reggie, you got to cut your mustache off. And it didn't work out that way. All of a sudden, we get a memo sent from uh, Finley's office. Uh, and uh, the memo said, anybody who has a mustache uh, on opening day and you make the ball club, you get uh, $300. So uh, that's the only reason why we grew mustache. I mean, these guys would have grown a mustache on their hind end for $300. And uh, we started winning. I think uh, first uh, 12 games of the season were like uh, nine and three. You know, baseball players were the uh, we're the most superstitious animals in the world, and so we kept the mustaches and we kept them the whole time we were in the in the uh, in Oakland in Oakland playing for the A's. So, how long, Raleigh, did it take for you to look at your face in the mirror and think, "Hey, wait a second, this isn't your standard <laughs> looking mustache. This isn't Dick Tidrow or the Ed Figueroa model." I know something really special going on here. I was 26 years old. I never had any facial hair, no mustaches. And so I started growing it and I started turning it up with the, with the handlebar stuff. And the guys kind of liked it. They say, well, why don't you just keep that and see how it goes? So I did. And then in 72, uh, we won the World Series. Now all of a sudden I got a handlebar mustache. My face is plastered all over the TV. Everybody's talking about the mustache gang. And so we win the World Series in 72. So I got to keep it. I mean, you don't shave off a mustache after winning a World Series. So 73, same thing. We beat the Mets, win the World Series. 74, we beat the Dodgers, win the World Series. Now I've got this thing for three years on national television, and bang, I got to keep this thing. And I've been stuck with it now for 50 years, but I only did it for 300 bucks. You men who long for love. 
You mustn't call despair. There's a secret you should know. To capture the hearts of the fair, you may not have the looks. You may not have the dash, but you'll win yourself a girl if you've only got a mustache. A mustache, a mustache, if you've only got a mustache. You may be common folk without a hint of pride, but you needn't be a king to make any maiden a bride. You may not have the name, you may not have the cash, but you'll make that girl your own if you've only got a mustache, a mustache, a mustache, if you've only got a mustache. You may be big and fat, or uglier than sin. All the ladies shut you out. You're wondering how to get in. Well, here is my advice for how to make a splash. You can have your pick of gals if you've only got a mustache, a mustache, a mustache. If you've only got a mustache, a mustache, a mustache, a mustache. Big mustache, thick mustache, my mustache, your mustache. Say the word, the word mustache, a mustache, a mustache. Now we both have said mustache, a mustache, a mustache. If you've only got a Slow-mo, welcome to my dojo, those other parts are so-so, I'm too like Froyo, focus like a GoPro, ripping up this promo, check out the scoreboard, freaks up though, and no one knows it's going, it's going, it's going, yo, it's going, your heart just stopped, cause Jake got strong and mighty, undefeated, I mean it, pull up the scribe, hold down and read it, written, produced, directed, and mixed, dung on your lips, and Ozzy Smith backflips, pick a tip, any tip, get onto it, I got ridiculous pods without forcing it, you sit at home crying like a girl, while I spread the gospel around the world, yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed in, smooth with the groove to make ears wanna listen, at a little cut, and a rhythm to back it up, another show to my name, so I'ma stack it up, you think another white rap pack, but this ain't no act jack, my hobbies to rhyme, some people trying to be black, but that, about time I come out and call this show, BKP and let me turn it out, yo, name Jake the Snake, born of 71, date, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns, yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory, and that's why I collect ball players and their stories. Y'all heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair. Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where 
We collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, you cement freaks? What's good? I'm Jake Robinson. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Welcome back to the dojo, boys and girls, for yet another episode of BKP. As we inch closer and closer to the first 100 shows in our history. And every week, I like to take these deep historical dives into the characters, milestones, moments of the great national pastime that have been woven into the fabric of America. And there are about 50 regular season games left in the 2023 MLB season. Less than a third to go. And that last third, well, it's going to make or break some teams coming down the stretch here. I'm sure we'll all be watching that. It's been a fantastic season. And the attendance numbers say baseball is on a great trajectory for the year. A rebound of epic proportions in many cities. And it's been kind of a weird week, right? Like, you know, like, almost like soap opera-ish. Like, you know, some TMZ gossip news, clickbait. Uh, you know, it's just everything but baseball, right? So you got the uh, the the Tim Anderson Jose Ramirez fight. I didn't agree with the outcome. Everybody's free to their own opinion. I didn't agree with it. I think Ramirez was truly the instigator of that whole thing. I mean, you know, he slides headfirst in the second base, and he, you know he's looking he's looking to start something. It's very clear. He points up at him on the ground. Why? Because he slid he tagged him in the head while he was sliding headfirst. Give me a break. Give me a break. And this whole you know Saint Ramirez, uh, you know, and and Ta's a thug. Thug. What is this thug shit? I mean, seriously. You know there's connotations to that, right? I mean, is 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 Tim Anderson out selling crack in South Chicago? Is he beating women? Is he breaking the law? What what makes him a thug? I gotta know this. What makes him a thug? I saw a lot of really nasty shit this week. Just because you like one guy over the other doesn't mean the guy that you don't like was not the aggressor in the situation. I heard all kinds of arguments. Oh, he cheated the day before he pushed his hand off the base. Really, he cheated. Uh, was there an instant review of that play? And what the umpire said? The umpire said he was out. So, you know, if you got a problem, take it up with the umpire. Why are you calling T.A. a thug? That guy has helped so many, uh, you know, poor people, poor, you know, minorities, black people, Spanish people in South Chicago, and he's a thug? Look, man, you may not like his playing style, but that dude is no thug. He's a professional baseball player. You may not like him, but to term him as a thug is ridiculous. And Ramirez is what? The saint? He's the vigilante of the base pass? He was upset by the way Tim Anderson plays, so uh, he's going to take matters into his hand. He's going to be judge and jury. No, thank you. That was a good fight, though. They squared up. T.A. cracked him. And then, you know, a bunch of seven people got in the middle of it. And, you know, Ramirez threw this wild haymaker. I mean, it landed flush. Flush. But, you know, it was... Come on now, let's be honest. It was it was all luck. He just threw the punch. You know, you ever, I don't know if any of you have ever been punched with, like, six or seven people around you. Like, this window. And then a fist comes in between that. You know, it's, it's discombobulating. To say the least. 
But whatever, man. I think they both should have got the same amount of games at least in suspensions. And Ramirez should have got more. But whatever, man. You know, that is the people that run baseball. I mean, they are so freaking detached from reality. I'm looking at what's going on in Baltimore with John Angelos here. And look, I know a lot of people were reaching out to me yesterday. They want me to have this knee-jerk reaction. I'm sorry, man. I don't just fucking take the word of awfulannouncing.com as, you know, who are these people? I did my own research. I was up till 3 o'clock in the morning watching video, calling my contacts. And it turns out that, you know, pretty much a lot of this is true. But I'm going to tell you something. It's even worse than that on many levels. That people don't even know that the story is going to come out in the next couple weeks. It's even worse than what's reported. I got no mercy for John Angelos. I, you know, anybody who's listened to me for the past seven years, you know how I felt about the father. I almost divorced that team because of the father. And we can see here now clearly that the apple does not far, far, fall far from the tree. I mean, they're, you know, talk about detached from reality. All these guys that run baseball, they're all detached from reality. Bunch of entitled people. It's unbelievable. I stand with Kevin Brown. As someone who uses my voice to make money and to capture an audience, I know what it takes. And it doesn't, the whole story is ridiculous because obviously someone in the Orioles PR department, which is handpicked by John Angelos, by the way, somebody gave this guy a script, they gave him graphics behind his fucking head. It's not like they didn't know this was coming. Ben McDonald slides in the picture. They're talking about, obviously, before they went on the air, Kevin Brown and Ben McDonald were like, this is what we're going to talk about. I'm going to kick it to you, blah, 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 blah. Because that's how it works. And they're trying to act like this is out of the blue, that he just said this out of the blue. The whole story is ridiculous. And, and, And look. It's so wrong on so many levels. Everything about this dude, man. I've been saying it since last year. Why isn't the Camden Yards lease signed? Why? Major League Baseball is going to have to step in here. You can't let the Orioles just go somewhere and have Camden Yards as an empty shell of a stadium. I mean, somebody's going to have to jump in here. These Angeloses are out of control. I got no mercy on what's coming for them. Nationally, in that city, none. They have, it's, you guys don't even know, man. I'm telling you, they have barred people from uh, radio stations. They have barred reporters. My, my first boss in the communications industry, Nestor Aparicio, they won't even let him in the clubhouse. I don't know if they changed that role or what, but... You know, they barred him because he was critical of the team. And why hasn't Jim Palmer been suspended for being critical on the air for like 30 years now? And rightly so. Because if you suspend Jim Palmer, if you fire Jim Palmer, we'll burn that warehouse down, brother. And you know it. So I don't know why you're picking on Kevin Brown. But I stand behind that dude. And the story, I'm telling you folks, it's even worse than what's being reported. Worse! 
It's a goddamn shame. But I'm going to tell you something. I don't think this team's going to fold. They're too young, too talented. They're too young and dumb to know. First of all, they're too talented. They ain't going to crumble. But baseball's going to have to step in on John Angeles. He is out of control. The dude told the Baltimore uh, fan base last year that he was going to open the books to the reporters and prove that the Orioles are losing money. Never happened. Never fucking happened. And then when he gets called out after not talking to the media for, you know, three years... Oh, he gets all defensive on that day. Tells the reporter, shame on you. This is Jackie Robinson Day. Why are you going to come up here with that negativity? I mean, one thing has nothing to do with the other, dude. We haven't said things. We haven't asked you questions in three years. D'Angelo's has got to go, man. They got to go. They got to go. But look. Phew, I'm fired up, man. There'll be plenty of time for that discussion down the road. I want to get right after this week. The catcher looks like he's ready to throw it down. There he goes. And now the infielders throw that rock around. So, if I can get you to say your farewells, give your hugs and kisses out to your loved ones, I'd like to clear this platform, load up our time travel on choo-choo, as I call all aboard. And I'm going to set our time and destination for Steubenville, Ohio, the early 1950s, where a future baseball king has been born. And under the watchful eye of his father, he's learning to be a dual-threat outfielder and pitcher. Ladies and gentlemen, this week I'm going to delve into the life and times of the great Raleigh figures. And... While we bend baseball, space, and time to get to Steubenville, I always remember that amazing 1981 season when I think of Raleigh, where the pioneering closer was simply a man among boys. And Raleigh Fingers was euphoric as he called his Hall of Fame battery mate Ted Simmons after striking out Tiger second baseman Lou Whitaker to nail down that W that would send the Milwaukee Brewers to the postseason and the second half AL East title in 1981. The unprecedented split season was created after the MLB players had laid down their arms and demands after two months of a work stoppage in the form of a player strike. The first time in the club's 13-year history, the Brewers were headed to the playoffs. And they would ultimately get bounced by the New York Yankees three games until in the first round of the second season, but... It was uh, Fingers, whose 28 saves that year, and not only preserved 45% of the Brew Crew's victories, but it would also garner Rowling Fingers, both the AL Cy Young and American League MVP honors. Only five pitchers in the history of the game, Don Newcomb, Sandy Kopax. Bob Gibson, Danny McLean, and Vida Bloat had accomplished this distinction before him, and only four have done it since. Roger Clemens, Justin Verlander, and two fellow closers, Dennis Eckersley and Willie Hernandez. And here we go, folks. We are now pulling up to our time and destination. Roland Glenn Bingers was born in Steubenville, Ohio, 
on August 25th, 1946, to parents George Fingers and his mother, Pearl Stafford Fingers. His father, who is credited for teaching him the game and instilling the passion in the kid, was a steel worker for a local mill. And he had once pitched professionally in the cards farm system for four years, and he used to always regale his sons with stories about his roommate, the great Stan the Man Musil. And his time in the, uh, the, the Cardinals organization. Raleigh often credits his father with being his first coach and opening the door for his son to love the same game that it had, had meant the world to his father. When I was about eight years old, I went over to my neighbor's house and there was no one home at the time. And I found a book of matches. And I started playing with these matches. Well, the next thing I knew, the bedroom was on fire. Yes. <laughs> well, as I sat there and watched the fire department putting out the fire, I realized what a terrible thing I had done. My dad was at work, and when he got home from work, my mother told him what I had done. And I was up in my bedroom, and I heard his steps coming up the, up the stairway to my room. Well, I knew I was going to get it. But instead, he kind of surprised me. He, he didn't spank me. He didn't yell at me. He said, come with me. So down the stairs we went, outside to my dad's old Dodge. And down towards town, we started driving. Well, he pulled up in front of the sheriff's station. And I didn't know what he was going to do there. And we went indoors into the sheriff's station. He knew the sheriff in town. They were real good friends. And the next thing I know, we were walking down the hall to one of the cells. I was eight years old now. So my dad, uh, he puts me in the cell, the, the sheriff opens and he puts me in, and he leaves me there for three hours. Well, for those three hours, it seemed like three years. Now, you might think this is a cruel thing to do to an eight-year-old boy, but you'd have to really know my dad. He had his way of doing things, and he had his way of getting his point across. And on that day, he did three things. First of all, he scared the hell out of me. Second, I never ever played with matches again. And thirdly, I gained a whole lot of respect for him that day. And you can tell that he had a real close connection to his father from a very, very, very young age. He, he loved the stories. Uh, he used to tell him about playing with Stan Musil and the Cardinals. And really... He credits his father as his first coach in his baseball career. And also, I'd like to take our first sidebar this week, folks. And I've spoken before about the magic that is Steubenville, Ohio before. So many celebrities and sports athletes have come from this small Ohio town. Uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker and Raleigh Fingers are the most recognized baseball names, but the town has seen the birth of other luminaries such as John Bucci-Gross from ESPN, porn starlet Tracy Lords, former Rat Packer Dean Martin, the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan, Jimmy the Greek, as well as the 70s funk band Wild Cherry, and a whole roster of other impactful Americans. I'm not sure if it's something in the water, but 
If you ever want to have your mind blown, Google celebrities from Steubenville, Ohio, and then dive into that rabbit hole. It is a litany of impressive names to come out of that town. And one of those names is Raleigh Fingers. Now, his stay in Steubenville is not long-lived, though. As early in his adolescence, the family moved with his father after a vexing day at the steel mill, comes home, and basically tells Fingers... Uh, the unit to pack his shit, we're moving to Cali. And he probably sold the family home for $1,500, brought a jalopy to make the trip out west and, and uh, drive the family to their new unrealized future. The money was so tight on this excursion that instead of renting hotel rooms along the way, the family laid out sleeping bags on the side of the road to sleep in when they needed rest. The figures would ultimately settle down in Autoloma, which is located in San Bernardino County, where his father promptly found work, albeit in another steel mill. Eventually, Altolomo would later incorporate three other towns into their district, and it is now called Rancho Cucamonga, and it sits east of L.A. Raleigh played left field, and he pitched for the Uplands High School baseball team. He also played American Legion ball for the Upland Post. And upon graduation from high school, he led his American Legion team to an American Legion baseball title. And he is voted unanimously as the tournament's player of the year. The road to get there was kind of a cakewalk through the local and regional attorneys. The national tournament was held in Little Rock, Arkansas, and the young Raleigh Fingers is a man among mere boys. The first game of the round, Robin Affair versus a team from Detroit, Michigan, sees Fingers playing left field, and he paces the lineup with three hits as well as the defense as he made two spectacular running snags. He would lay the smackdown on the team from Charlotte in the title game when he tossed a three-hit shutout versus the North Carolinians. And for the Legion season, he finished with an 11-2 record and a .67 ERA, 102 strikeouts and 81 innings. In the regionals and national tournament, he also batted four fifty. After the success of the American League Legion Tournament, Raleigh realizes that he has attracted the eyes of MLB scouts. The free agent draft has yet to be established, so he returns home. He sits down with his parents to contemplate his baseball future. Uh, There were more than a dozen offers being thrown at him, and he felt a little overwhelmed, so he turned to the most trusted people in his orbit, which of course was his parents. Raleigh was offered a $20,000 bonus, which is a little more than two hundred dollars in the 2023 economy. And that was to sign with his favorite team, the Dodgers. And he was really tempted to accept the offer. But he figured that L.A., with their solid pitching tradition, which already featured his personal baseball heroes, uh, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, it would take longer than he wanted to make the show. Instead, he accepted a deal that he felt would benefit his young career the most. Instead of twenty grand and possibly languishing on the farm for a few years for his favorite team, he accepts a $13,000 offer from the Kansas City Athletics on Christmas Eve 1964. $13,000 in 1964 has the purchasing power of more than $130,000 in the 2023 economy. Now, butterfly effect moment. The A's 
originally wanted Raleigh to play the outfield. But when he arrived to Class A Florida State League in 1965, they pivoted and decided to run him out there as a pitcher. Where he goes 8-15 with a 2.98 ERA. In late August, he makes a sojourn to Cooperstown, New York, where he receives his American Legion, uh, Legion Player of the Year award from the previous summer. But going back to this thing where Kansas City originally projects him as an outfielder with pop and then turns him into a starting pitcher. Raleigh Fingers could always rake. He had a 235, 292, 345 slash and a 632 OPS over 17 Major League Baseball seasons. That's pretty impressive for a pitcher. Had he worked at it harder instead of pitching, we might be talking about Raleigh Fingers, the Hall of Fame outfielder. He struck out only 18% of his plate appearances. That's better than a lot of these everyday players right now. And, you know, I used to love watching Raleigh in these celebrity softball games during the All-Star weekends. And I remember one game, Fingers had like three dongs. I mean, old Raleigh could swing a bat. But I digress. Fingers spent the 1966 season as a starting pitcher for the Modesto Reds of the Class A California League. He goes 11-6 with a 2.27 ERA. And that's on a team that includes future Hall of Famers Reggie Jackson and Hall of Fame manager Tony La Russa as teammates. In the spring of 1996, Raleigh marries his high school sweetheart, Jill Cutler. The two had met when she was a statistician for the Upland High School baseball team. So with the love of his life in his corner, he continues to climb the A's ladder as he now finds himself as the ace of the Birmingham Ball Club in the AA Southern League. He suffers a setback when he is hit in the face by a comebacker off the bat of Fred Kovner of Evansville. He has a fractured cheek and jawbone, and the injury requires him to have his jaws wired shut for five weeks. When he returns, he finishes the season with a 6-5 record, 2.21 ERA. He then continues to play in the Arizona Fall Instructional League. The Athletics moved from Kansas City after the 1967 season, season, a story we've covered extensively here in previous pods. And for the second straight season, Raleigh finds himself toiling away in Birmingham. He starts off the season white hot, finishes the campaign with a 10-4 record and an ERA of 3. His rock-steady growth and consistency earns him a September call-up to the big club, and Raleigh would never again return to the farm. He only pitched once for the Athletics after the call-up. He allowed four runs on four hits to the World Series-bound Detroit Tigers on September 15th. And one of those four hits was a home run blast off the bat of catcher Bill Freehand. And during that offseason, Raleigh goes down to the Venezuela Winter Leagues and he begins developing a slider to complement his heat. As opening day 1969 is set to begin, manager Hank Bauer sets his four-man rotation of Blue Moon Odom, Chuck Dobson, Catfish Hunter, and Jim Nash. Fingers would spot start when the A's played more than four days straight. He makes his first start of the season on April 22nd in Minnesota versus the Twins, shutting them out in a 7-0 complete game. 
He faced only 32 batters that day, shredded the Twins lineup to pieces. Five days later, he goes eight and third innings, allows five runs on six hits versus the Seattle Pilots in a 13-5 win. Seven days later, he again starts versus Seattle, this time at home, and he takes the L in a 6-4 defeat that saw him surrender 11 hits. He wouldn't start again until May 30th, when he is shelled by the Tribe, lasting just the third of an inning and a 9-2 loss. For the next three and a half months, Fingers was used exclusively out of the Oakland Bully, and would not make another start until September 15th, when he loses to the Twins. For his first full season, Fingers finishes with a 6-7 and seven record, 12 saves, in 60 games. Hank Bauer would be fired in September and replaced with John McNamara, who was Raleigh's manager at Birmingham. Under McNamara, in 1970, Fingers made 19 starts and 26 relief appearances, going 7-9. and nine. And during the offseason, the A's would again make a managerial change as Mack is given the axe and is replaced by Dick Williams. Initially, Williams had the young fingers in the rotation after eight... Uh, he had him in the rotation. After eight starts on May 16th, fingers is now 1-3, and three, and Williams makes a move that would forever change the course of Raleigh's career for the better. He moves fingers to the bully, gives him the role as closer, and except for two starts early in the 1973 season, he would remain a closer for the next 15 years. In the 17 years that I played, I had 15 managers. But uh, there are a couple that I'd like to acknowledge. First of all, Hank Bauer, who in 1969 gave me my first shot at the big leagues. And secondly, a guy who, along with my first pitching coach, Bill Posdell, came to me one day and said, Son, the only way you're ever going to see the ninth inning is going to be as a relief pitcher, because you're never going to see it as a starter. And he put me in the bullpen. And when he did that, he changed my whole career around, because I was almost on my way out of baseball. And he gave me confidence in myself to be able to do the job out there. And he did that by doing one thing, and that was handing me the baseball day after day after day. And that was Dick Williams. Thank you, Dick. And in that 1971 Crossroads season, Raleigh Fingers collects 17 saves in 20 attempts and has the fourth most saves in the American League. 17 saves in 1971 is the fourth most saves in the AL. It's quite a different uh, look than what you see nowadays in the Major League Baseball brand. The A's won 101 games that year to win the AL West by 16 games over the Royals, but they were swept by the Orioles in the ALCS. Fingers got into two games that championship series, surrounding two runs in two and a third innings pitched. The ALCS would mark the first of five consecutive division championships for Oakland as the farm was beginning to bear the fruit of young ballplayers like Fingers, Reggie Jackson, Burt Campanaris, Joe Rudy, Sal Bando, Catfish Hunter, Blue Moon Odom, and Vida Blue. As the players matured together, 
They began to gel as a team, and eventually they ruled the baseball universe. That ALCS in 1971 was the first postseason the A's had been in since their loss to the 1931 St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series. But it certainly would not be their last. In 72, 73, and 74, the A's would win three consecutive world titles. Over that span, in a time when the semi-automatic obligatory ninth inning closer uh, was not yet a fixture in baseball theory, Raleigh Fingers was redefining the role of a closer with 61 saves, uh, 27-22 and 22 record, and a 2.34 ERA during that spin. In each of those seasons, he was putting it between 111 and 126 innings pitched a year. Numbers that are absolutely unheard of today from the closer position. He would make his first All-Star team in 1973, and that would be the first of seven appearances. In 1972, Reggie Jackson shows up to camp with a mustache and a beard. And, you know, it was just unheard of in those days. In all sports, not just baseball, but baseball in particular. Uh, His teammates hated it, in particular Raleigh. Every day he would politely ask Jackson to shave, and every day he would refuse. So, as a protest to the Jackson facial hair, his teammates began growing out their whiskers to show him how ridiculous he looked. And when Finley gets a whiff of what's going on in his clubhouse, first of all, they're doing this because they figure Finley's going to be like, yeah, shut this down, Dick Williams. Make these people shave their faces. It looks awful. Uh, But actually, when Finley gets a whiff of what's going on in the clubhouse, he goes to take a look for himself. And instead of ordering the boys to shave, as everyone besides Reggie had hoped he would, the showman saw this as a gimmick that would make money and sell tickets. And because calling them the mustache gang, he tells them there would be an extra $300 bonus bucks to anyone who had facial hair by opening day. But he also offered a cash prize to the player with the best facial hair by opening day. Fingers decided to grow the handlebar mustache with the wax curled tips. And it won the contest. And it has been his image trademark ever since. Even to this day. And... I feel like I should mention that that $300 bonus in 1972 is worth about $2,200 today in the 2023 economy. After the 1972 season, Charles Finley, A's owner, sends Fingers a contract. And we talked about this the other day. You know, they used to, you know, give you the contract through the mail or, or on the phone. It was really odd. You know, who? I don't know. That's just crazy. I calls him up, gives him a contract offer, a thousand dollar raise for the new season, and Fingers calls Finley back and says, "You know that raise is too small." And the miserly Finley, he doesn't capitulate. I mean, he never did when it came to money. An angry Fingers slams the phone down on the receiver, and he vows he would never speak to that son of a bitch ever again. He probably hires agent Jerry Kaperstein to represent him in negotiations with the old man. And true to his word, Fingers never said another word to the owner ever again. From 1974 to 1976, 
Fingers pitched in at least 70 games a year, leading the AL in appearances in 1974 and 1975. During that span, he saved 62 games for Oakland and had a better than 3-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. In June of 1976, with the collapse of the reserve clause impending, Bentley anticipating he's going to lose talent to free agency after the season, he sells Fingers and Joe Rudy to the Red Sox for a million dollars apiece, and he sells Bonta Blue to the Yankees for $1.5 million. Baseball Commissioner Bowie Kuhn steps in, rescinds the deal, saying they're not in the best interest of baseball. Finley argues, if I lose them during the offseason, then I'll get nothing in return. But Commissioner Kuhn sticks to his guns by rightly saying, if he allowed these sales to go through the door, it would totally open wide other doors for affluent clubs to take advantage of this loophole. Which, he's 100% there. Look at who benefited in those moves. The Yankees and the Red Sox. Two teams who essentially print money in their fucking basement. And sure enough, after the 1976 season, Fingers and several teammates of the dynastic A's, they leave the frugal Finley behind in the city by the bay, and they all went their separate ways like Journey. Iconic stalwarts like Reggie Jackson, Don Baylor, Joe Rudy, Sal Bandel, Burt Campanellis, as well as uh, catcher Gene Tennis, who followed Fingers out west, all found themselves in new gear by opening day of the 1977 campaign. So, before I take you through the second and third act of Raleigh's baseball story, let's take a break right here. When we return, we'll continue the story of this iconic closer and his journey, which will ultimately lead to Cooperstown, New York. BRB freaks, see you on the other side of the break. I wish you had a pencil and mustache Boston black hair kind Two-tone Ricky Ricardo jacket And an autographed picture of Andy Devine I remember being but too skinny born to play baseball. But where I'm from, we never take anything for granted. Come on, Mike. I was raised to value hard work and to practice respect. I still call my parents before every game, and this guy has trained me since high school. I grew up playing other sports, and I still make time for things I love. My friends are a source of inspiration. And my dad is still my hero. Maybe I'm not what everyone wants me to be, but I'm exactly who I've always been. I don't play for the fame, the money, or the endorsements. I'm still that same old kid with a big dream and a decent swing. Some say I'm the best to play the game. Me? I just want to play. Too many games and not enough fields. Musco, the official lighting sponsor of Little League, has the solution. Energy-efficient and cost-effective lighting systems that volunteers can install. With Musco's special pricing, financing, and fundraising help, you could be playing under the lights. For a free guide to lighting your field, visit www.musco.com. 
for your league, for your kids. Musco Lighting. We make it happen. This game is for you, the fan. You want the action to flow, the bat on the ball, and bearing on the baseballs. This is the game we all want to see. Get the ball, pitch the ball. Keep the defense on their toes. Field like Ozzy, run like Ricky. So get that shit out of here. Free up the players to put on a show. It's the best game in the world. Now it's even better. Cucamonga. He dominates the American Legion Tour after high school, returns home to contemplate his baseball future with his parents. His favorite team, the Dodgers, offer him a deal, but he isn't sure if he can make the rotation that is comprised of Don Drysdale and Sandy Kopex, so he takes a deal with the Kansas City A's and Charlie Finley. Pingers dominates the minors as a starting pitcher, but he is rather mediocre as a starter in the majors. So, Manager Dick Williams changes the course of his baseball career forever when he makes Raleigh the team closer. In 1974, uh, 72, Reggie Jackson shows up at spring training camp with a full beard and mustache, which was just never seen back then by professional athletes. You see him all the time now, especially from closers, ironically. But, uh, you know, this was a new kind of deal when everybody's like, look, man, shave it off. It ain't right. You know, I, I love how he's like, it ain't right. It's just so funny. But, yeah, um, Reggie would not capitulate. He would not shave the beard off. And so the guys in the bullpen decide, well, we're going to grow a mustache to make Reggie realize how ridiculous he looks. And, you know, eventually Dick Williams and Charlie Finley are going to shut this down. But that doesn't happen. Finley uh, offers them a $300 bonus and a prize for the best mustache. And, you know, Riley Fingers likes to say to this day, he's had it for all these years, now 50 years now. And it's a part of his brand, but he only did it for $300. (laughs) Which I think that's pretty funny. The reserve clause is lifted. And players are leaving the miserly Finley in droves for other teams and a lot more money. In a feeble attempt to prevent teams from making an offer to Raleigh, 
Brindley publicly stated that his closer was washed, but any baseball exec with eyeballs could see that Charlie O was, you know, he was horseshit here. The San Diego Padres saw through the charade. They signed figures for 250k a year, which was triple the highest salary he ever saw in Oaktown. And $250,000 in 1977 is worth a little more than $1.25 million today in the 2023 economy. The Dodgers, Pirates, Cards, Giants, they had all pursued the mustache closer. Raleigh personally was excited by the new challenges and the possibilities of playing for the Friars. The NL umpires back then gave pitchers uh, with great control the benefit of the doubt. On low ball strikes, and that's right up Raleigh's alley. His signing uh, comes days after his marriage to his second wife, the former Danielle Lamar, on November 14th. His first marriage ended in divorce in 1974, and this one would eventually collapse in divorce as well. Another thing Raleigh liked about his new digs was that once again, he would be playing for former A's manager John McNamara who took the managing reins of the Fathers in 1974. However, the reunion would be short-lived as Mack would be relieved of his duties as manager 77 games into the 1977 season, and he would be replaced by Alvin Dark. When Fingers signed with San Diego, there was some thought that he would be moved to the starting rotation, with Butch Metzger, who had 16 Saves for the club in 1976, and he earned NL Rookie of the Year award. Uh, you know, everybody assumed that he would remain the closer. But McNamara surprised many of the uh, scribes by penciling uh, in the pencil-thin mustache fingers as the team closer from day one, and choosing to use Metzger more in like you know this relief role capacity. The Padres staff was angered by 1976 Cy Young winner. Randy Jones, an arm injury in September, almost derailed his 1977 season, and he finished the campaign going 6-12 and in 27 games with a 4.58 ERA and a 78 ERA+. plus. That's Randy Jones. Meanwhile, Fingers dazzled. 35 saves was a major contributor and more than half of the team's 69 wins that year. During his four-year run as the Pots closer, he went 34-40 while racking up 108 saves and 265 total outings. The team was not very good. They only had one year above 500 with fingers on the roster, and they never finished higher than fourth in the then six-team NL West. The mediocrity of the franchise was not due in any part to the effort of Raleigh Fingers. During his four-year tender, uh, four-year tenure in San Diego, he won the unofficial NL Fireman of the Year Award three times, 1977. 1978 and 1980. In his final year in Padres gear, he passes Hoyt Wilhelm and his 227 career saves for the MLB record. Now think about that. 227 career saves is the record in 1980. Upon completion of the 1980 season, Raleigh Fingers returns to the American League. The, the Padres traded him his longtime battery mate Gene Tennis and pitcher Bob Shirley to the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cards then flipped fingers, Hall of Fame catcher Ted Simmons and pitcher Pete Vukovich to the Milwaukee Brewers for outfielders Sixto Lexicano and David Green, as well as pitchers Larry Sorensen and Dave LaPointe. 
when fingers join the Bruco. They were a team trending in the right direction as an American League East power. They were led by dynamic future Hall of Famers and Robin Yount, Paul Mahler, but they had struggled to find consistency from the back end of their bullet. And many prognosticators saw Raleigh as the missing ingredient for the rising brewers, the proverbial straw that would stir the beer, as it were. And Fingers surpassed his billing, and what was regarded as one of the most dominant seasons ever by a closer in this era. Uh, Raleigh saved 28 of the team's 62 victories during the strike-shortened season of 1981, and he helped lead the team to the second-half AL East title. His 28 saves and minuscule 1.04 ERA, and landed him not only uh, as the 1981 AL Cy Young Award winner, but also the American League MVP as well. Fingers had one win and one save as the Brewers would fall to the Yankees, three games to two in the divisional round. Fingers was the first closer to ever win the AL MVP, and he would be joined later by Tigers Willie Hernandez and Dennis Eckersley of the A's. In all, there have been 10 hurlers to win the two prestigious awards in the same season. Raleigh, Willie Eck, Clayton Kershaw, Justin Verlander, Don Newcomb, Bob Gibson, Danny McLean, Roger Clemens, and Sandy Kopex. I think I missed Clayton. Clayton Kershaw earlier when I gave that to you. So, pretty impressive there. First close ever when they have uh, ALMAP. Uh, he sets the course for Willie Hernandez and Dennis Eckersley right behind him. So, with the context in mind about how historical this season was, especially as the first closure in baseball history to take home both of these awards, let's take a look back at Raleigh's 1981 season. In 47 appearances, Raleigh finished all 41 of them. He pitched 78 innings that year. He went 6-3 with a 1.04 ERA and a 2.72 FIP. 28 saves and 34 opportunities. He faced 297 batters, surrendered only three home runs, struck out 61, walked 13. Five of those were intentional. A .87 whip. He averaged seven strikeouts per nine, and he carries an astounding 333 ERA plus for the campaign. And again, remember, this was a strike-shortened season. And there was a big argument then, and it has remained to this day, about whether bigger season was even the best closer in baseball year. Was it better than Yankees closer Kuskacic, for example? And if you get a chance... Maybe compare those seasons out for yourself. If you're looking for an internal argument for your seamhead brain, Goose converted 20 of 23 saves that year. He had a better ERA than Fingers at .77, a better whip, .77, and he struck out 9.3 batters per nine. So, if you're looking for a good baseball argument for your brain, there you go. As I scroll through the hitters in 1981 on that uh, MVP level to counter the fingers vote, I'm looking at Ricky Henderson, who had a 319, 408, 495 slash with 56 bags. And from Milwaukee, his teammate Cecil Cooper kind of stands out in retrospect with his 320, 363, 495 slash, 12 dogs, 60 ribs. And it's very interesting to look back on these numbers some 42 years later. And for me, the numbers are the numbers. 
but the numbers always pale to the moments that had been witnessed. In 1982, Finger saved 29 games, and he is cruising along with his usual consistent self in late July. And the Brewers are an amazing collection of baseball talented, uh, especially in the infield. They got Yount, Molitor, Cooper, Jim Gantner. They're blessed with speed and power in the outfield. Vukovic and Raleigh are the anchors from the top of the rotation to the back of the bully. And they are in complete control of the AL East for most of the season. We've covered that in the uh, Wallbanger show. And it's in that banging ass backwards K uh, pod catalog. By all means, check it out if you ain't hurt. And as I said in that show, even though the Brewers would take the AL East crown in 1982, it didn't start out very well for Milwaukee, as the underachieving talent was sitting at 23 and 24 when the team fired manager Buck Rogers and replaced him with hitting coach Harvey Keene. And internally, many of the Brewer players, Raleigh Fingers included, they criticized and complained about Rogers and his strategy and baseball theory. But the clubhouse loved Harvey. They gravitated around the one-legged leader, and the Harvey's wallbangers were born, and they rode that wave all the way to the World Series versus the Cardinals. On August 30th, 1982, the Brewers go out and get future Hall of Fame pitcher Don Sutton, from the Houston Astros in exchange for three prospects. Sutton joins the team the next day, and he starts the second game of a doubleheader versus the Tribe. The Brewers would lose that game 4-2, but that was not the worst news of the day for that team. In the first game, Fingers tears a muscle in his right forearm. The injury put him on the shelf for the remainder of the season. Rookie Pete Ladd is tabbed as his replacement as the closer, And as we all know, that Brewers team would win the AL pennant or the AL East pennant on the very last game of the year in a winner-take-all deal when Sutton stymies the runner-up Orioles lineup and Robin Young drops two bombs on Jim Palmer. The Brewers would go on to the World Series for the first time in club history but fall to the cards in seven with Raleigh on the sidelines helplessly watching. Tendonitis injury left finger sideline for all of 1983. He returns to his former self in 1984, saving 23 games for a team that was a major disappointment, finishing 67-94 under new manager Renee Latchman. In 1985, the now 38-year-old Fingers is struggling. He is healthy for the most part. Uh... Back in his usual closer role, but he had clearly began to fall off. He saved 17 games, but he blew eight, finishing with a 1-6 record and a 5.04 ERA. At the end of the year, the Brewers released him. Reds owner, Marge Schott, began kicking the tires on the free agent and offered him a shot to close games in the Queen City. The Reds insisted that he adhere to the team no facial hair policy, which meant cutting his trademark mustache off. And Fingers didn't even consider for a second. That was a deal breaker, so he declined the offer, and he retired. After the retirement, he goes back to San Diego, where he works for a communications company for the next 12 years or so. He also has a short stint at a printing company. In January 1992, Fingers is elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, on his second appearance on the ballot, along with pitcher Tom Seaver. 
And before his induction, the Brewers retired his number 34, and a year later, the A's would follow suit. To this day, golf has become Raleigh's biggest passion. He is still a beast athlete. He's kept himself in great shape. He has carried a handicap of 2-3 to three for the majority of his adult life. He's a scratch golfer. He's played for more than a decade with several other pro athletes on celebrity golf tours, and he's finished his highest third in these tournaments. Today, Fingers resides in Las Vegas. Of his five children, his son Jason Fingers was drafted by the Kansas City Royals in the 2000 Amateur Baseball Draft. He put in his work as a pitcher for Spokane of the Class uh, Low A Northwestern League and then the High A Midwest League before ending his baseball career. He was... Uh, I'll say this about Rollin. He was the right player at the right time with the right teams to change the complexion of the closer role. And it wasn't like today's closers who worked strictly the ninth inning. 135 of his saves came with two or more innings pitched, which is still a Major League Baseball record. He had that record for most saves when he retired with over 100 more than his previous holder, uh, the great knuckleballer Hoyt Wilhelm, has 944 games pitched, 107 relief wins, and 1,505 innings pitched were the third most in league history when he hung it up for good. His 2.90 ERA and ranks eighth among pitchers when he left with at least 1,500 innings pitched after 1930. When fingers reached the majors... The role of the closer was limited, as the starters rarely left the game with a leap. But as team offenses increased after expansion in 1969, as well as the designated hitter introduction to baseball in 1973, and without Tommy John's surgery as an option yet, managers throughout the game became more willing to replace starters in late innings with fresh arms. Throughout the 1960s, both leagues' annual save leaders, they usually finished, you know, with like 20, 25 saves in a given season. Nowadays, some closers on a good team reach that total in, in two or three months. Few pitchers remain in that role back then for more than two or three years. With, you know, significant anomalic exceptions such as uh, Elroy, Elroy Face, Hoyt Wilhelm, but... Between the evolving nature of baseball on the field and on the payroll, baseball allowed for greater opportunities for closers, and the position is ex- has exploded. Well, it did explode primarily in the 70s and 80s with mad scientists like Sparky Anderson and Tony La Russa pulling the strings. His record 30, 341 saves at the time would stand until Jeff Reardon surpassed him in 1992. And Raleigh was more than a mustache gimmick. He ate innings like a fat kid who likes cake. He was a fierce competitor, as fierce as anyone who's ever played the game. He is truly the godfather of the modern-day closer. He is rightfully regarded as a pioneer, defining that closer role for generations to come, and he was at the forefront of changing the game forever. But I'm going to tell you, never tell Raleigh he is a pioneer. The humble, articulate, well-thought-out icon will hear none of that. Even though on some level, he's got to know it's true, right? But I think I'm most proud of the position that I played. The relief pitcher, the short man, the stopper, the closer, the ace, the fireman. Whatever tag you want to throw on him, that's what I'm most proud of. There have been sports writers 
who have asked me how it feels to be the pioneer of relief pitching. Well, I'm far from being a pioneer. I'm not that old. And there have been a lot of great relief pitchers long before me who've had some outstanding years coming out of the bullpen. Johnny Murphy, Jim Constanti, Joe Black, Elroy Face, Dick Raditz, Lindy McDaniel, Ron Peronowski, Hoyt Wilhelm, and who could ever forget what Larry Sherry did in the 1959 World Series when he was the most valuable player. These are the pitchers that opened the door for the relief pitchers of my era. The Bruce Suters, Sparky Lyles, the Goose Gossages, Kent DeColvey, Dan Quisenberry, Tug McGraw, Daryl Knowles. You've heard, you've heard all of their names and, and the, li the list is endless. Each and every one of these players had as much to do with the success and the recognition of relief pitching as I did. It's just that I happen to be at the right place, at the right time, and on the right ball club. And, look, I just love him so much to this day, over 40 years later. He humbly considers himself just a link in the fence. But for the C-Meds who witnessed his exploits, there is no question that Raleigh Fingers changed baseball forever. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to bug out this week. I'm ready to proudly hang up the Raleigh Fingers story in our collection of ball players here at BKP. But before I do, let's take a look at the second big closer in baseball history after Wilhelm and those amazing stats from his incredible career. Roland Glenn Fingers, but everyone just calls him Raleigh. Born August 25th, 1946 in Steubenville, Ohio. So in about two weeks, we will be celebrating this legend's 77th birthday. And man, he still looks fantastic. Happy birthday, Raleigh. It was an honor, an absolute honor to watch it. Finished with a 25.6 war, 114 wins, 118 losses, and a scintillating 2.90 ERA. 17-year Major League career with the A's, the Fathers, and the Brew Crew. Nine years with Oakland, and four apiece with San Diego and Milwaukee. 944 games, 37 as a starter. He would be the last man on the bump in 709 of those 944 games he appeared in. 944 games is the second, 22nd most in baseball history. And he does have four complete games and two shutouts to his credit. 341 saves, which again was the threshold when he retired. 136 for Oakland, 108 San Diego, and 97 in Milwaukee. 1,701 and a third innings pitched. 123 home runs surrendered in his 17-year career. 1,299 strikeouts, 492 walks allowed. 6,942 batters faced in his career. 2.96 pip, 1.16 whip, and a 1.1, I'm sorry, a 117 ERA plus. Two times left the AL in games, 1974 and 1975. In 1978, he makes 78 appearances for the Padres, which leads the NL. And just to show you how effective he was as a workhorse, in 1974, with 76 appearances, he puts in 119 innings. In 75, he has 75 appearances with 126 innings pitched. And in 1978, he appears in 78 games for 132 innings pitched. A closer, folks. Now, go look at any closer in the game right now. 
None of them do what he did. Many of the closers today are strictly one inning. And Raleigh believes that closers should want to throw more than one inning today. He struck out 22.3% of the batters he faced. And the batters had a career slash of 235, 295, 340 off of him. Seven all-star appearances, 1974 World Series MVP, 1977, 78, 80, 1981 Rolades Relief Man Award, 1981 AL MVP and Cy Young winner. Two-time AL Player of the Week in July and August of 1976. He is the 10th oldest of all the living Hall of Famers. In 1992, the second time on the ballot, Bingers received 81.2% of the Hall of Fame vote to be inducted alongside Tom Seaver. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story of the great Raleigh Bingers. And I want to thank all of y'all for joining me in my sandbox this week, making some sandcastles with me. I hope you enjoyed the Raleigh Figure story as much as I enjoyed doing the research and presenting to you. And I promise, I'll try to be better for you freaks next week. I will never outright charge this audience for any of the baseball content I put out weekly. I got other ways to get where I'm going, baby. I don't need the nickel and dime, you guys. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play subscriptions. Never going to happen here at PKP. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves, put in the work, and come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Ryan Sandberg, folks. So, with Raleigh Fingers in the books with a backwards K next to it, and slowly getting smaller in my rearview mirror, I now turn my attention to our never-say-die baseball hydra staring back at me, and with a mighty swing, I chop. The head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics grow in its place. Next week, we're going to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, Seamheads. The Little League World Series is set to pop off, and I think it's apropos to examine this amazing annual tournament, baseball at its purest essence. Snake love the kids. Let's do it. But look, you already know, freaks. That's another story. For another pod, here. At Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. You got something you want to say to me? I ain't hard to find. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. You can email the show, backwardskpod at gmail.com. The X-Core handle is back underscore K underscore. It's so silly. X-Core. This guy thinks he's fucking Lex Luthor now. He's going to take over the world with Twitter. My God. I mean, we just live in a world of just Lulu's now, man. The X-Core handle is back. Underscore K. Underscore podcast. My personal handle at X-Core is at JRobbie1. That's J-R-O-B-B-I-E and the number one. The YouTube channel is Backwards K-Pod. But I'm usually just hanging with the fans at the private Facebook group page of the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer those questions so I know you're not a trolling bot and come on in. Please listen, share, download. If you can leave me a late review, a rate and review, I would surely appreciate it. It helps me to continue to do what I love most in the world, and that's spread the gospel of baseball around the world to the fine posts of this planet like yourself. 
If you're planning a trip to Denver, Colorado area anytime, please visit my boys Bruce and Danny at the National Ballpark Museum in Denver, Colorado. They have some fascinating exhibits on display, and they are known to play BKP in the background. So, check those dudes out and the amazing paraphernalia they have on display. So, yeah, I think that's it, folks. I accomplished my goals on this one, I feel like. No rest for the fucking weary. I'll be starting on Little League World Series tomorrow. I'm always hard at work for you guys. I love you, and I'll see you next week here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch with their nose in a van, looking bored and unproductive AF, by all means, take those monkeys outside. Play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one sport, uh, sparring session last year in the dojo, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, freaks. Peace.